Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? That was weird. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Off to a strong start as usual. I am Dr. Justin Burke. I am joined tonight by Chris the Chew Man Chew. Are you there? And our wonderful returning producer, Dr. Becca Raymond Quilker. Uh, welcome back, Becca. Wow. Hit, hit, hitting me with the doctor. We are so uh, grateful to have you as a producer. Becca has done a tremendous job on this episode. We're going to talk all about it. We had a outstanding guest, Dr. Diane Colello, who was here to talk about toxic ingestions and poisonings. Um, But first, Chris, remind us about the show. That's right. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And tonight we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Diane Colello. Dr. Colello is a pediatrician, medical toxicologist, and the executive director and medical director of the New Jersey Poison Center at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. A small-sized adult, she is excited to be on the Cribsiders podcast to talk about all the many ways a poison exposure can impact young children and how they are not, in fact, little adults. Areas of particular focus include the effect of cannabis on young children, pediatric environmental lead poisoning, and the impact of the opioid epidemic on the nation's kids. In addition, running a statewide poison control and coronavirus hotline gives her a bird's eye view of the many things from COVID-19 to the Tide Pod Challenge. Dr. Colello teaches us about the bimodal distribution of poisoning in pediatrics, how to categorize toxidromes, and when to use that quintessential cookout ingredient, charcoal. Yum. So, without further ado... I, I've, I've got no pun. Epicac, charcoal uh, active. Let's Ox. get to it. <laughs> let's get grilling. Oh. <laughs> uh, let's get activated. We'll take it. It's past my bedtime. All right. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> and welcome, Dr. Colello. We're so excited to have you for the show. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is great because I, like a lot of the topics we talk about, feel very uh, lacking in knowledge about touch ingestion. And I think I'm going to leave this episode with a lot more uh, pearls. I'll say we're a pretty fun bunch. We're pretty informal. I'd like to ask, is it okay if we refer to you as Diane going through the show? Is that? Of course. Please do. Beautiful. So we're all friends here now. So I, I uh, you know, want to make it official. Good. Um, Sounds good so to they, me. They, they, officially so, uh, friends. Officially <laughs> friends. <laughs> uh, why don't, um, so for, for those of the listeners, Diane, who, who aren't on such a, a great friend basis as us yet, um, can you give us a, a one-liner about yourself or kind of describe who you are so the audience needs to know you a little bit better? Sure. Um, well, I'm a mom and wife and pediatrician, toxicologist, 
who makes her life's work uh, running a poison control center and being a public health crusader for toxic exposures. I also have a side job as a musician. And unlike all the patients we're going to talk about today, I actually am a little adult, <laughs> even though children are not little adults. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm about 5'1 with heels. So not that that matters. Wow. Awesome. So um, one question I have for you, sort of a double question is, what, what was it about toxicology that made you want to become a toxicologist? And if I wanted to become a toxicologist, how would I become a toxicologist? Yeah, you know, in my pediatric residency, it was a bit serendipitous. Honestly, I had one of my co-residents said to me, you know, it's a great elective toxicology. You go to the poison control center and you just learn about toxicology for a month and it's awesome. And so I said, okay, that sounds good to me. I went and did, elect, did an elective. And there I met not only the specialty that I would really just fall in love with, but I met my two mentors, um, Dr. Fred Enredig and Kevin Osterhout, who are the pediatric toxicologists working at the Philadelphia Poison Control Center. And that relationship and discovering the subject matter, I think, is really a defining moment for me in my career. And they set me on my way. So I have a secret is one of my favorite rotations when I was a pediatric resident was toxicology. We got to go on field trips to the zoo to look at snakes and we got to around all the hospitals, the adults and the peds. And it was just like, it was always just so fun. We got to listen to all the cases that came into the poison center. It was just like a really fun cerebral uh, rotation. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's for the nerds among nerds. <laughs> And we just love it. I, we're so proud of it. I'll tell you, you know, you, you can't see, but I'm wearing my Chernobyl shirt because <laughs> we like radiation. Obviously, Chernobyl's a terrible thing that happened, but we love talking about the esoteric stuff that other people are like, why are we doing this? We like drawing chemical structures and, you know, genus and species names for plants and, and all kinds of stuff. So we, uh, exciting bunch with a lot of cocktail party um, information if you care to listen but <laughs> but toxicology is everywhere lots of fun facts maybe some not yeah. so fun facts as well exactly I, I might imagine for sure yeah so I was gonna ask you a question um, you know I'm getting as as Justin mentioned earlier I'm getting ready for intern year so I'm getting ready to um, learn a lot through through <laughs> through failure through through struggle um, you know first year being an MD but what is you know wondering if you could share a little bit about a favorite failure and and what you learned from it yeah um, I think I've had a lot <laughs> uh, but I think the one that um, I credit the most with where I am now is that I started off practicing primarily pediatric emergency medicine, certified in peds and PZM and toxicology and addiction. And I spent the first 10 or 15 years out of fellowship doing primarily PEM um, with some toxicology. And it's a great specialty with a ton of really smart people in it, but discovered that my love was really with toxicology and I was able to transition from, you know, the initial specialty that I kind of trained into doing something that I really, really love. And so I guess my favorite failure was discovering that even though PZM is a great field, the field for me really is toxicology and public health. Awesome. Nice. 
Uh, well, sometimes when we have time, we do some some co-host pits of the week of things that people are consuming or some cool ideas. And um, Becca, did you have a, did you have a pick of the week that you wanted to share? Um, sure. Yeah. So this is a, a pick of the week for the pandemic and and post pandemic, if that's if that's where we're headed. Hopefully, it is something called Libby, which is a app. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but it's essentially love Libby. Love Libby. Okay. So it's a, it's a big hit. Um, for people of all ages, but it's an app. You can use it on your, you know, iPhone, iPad, computer, any kind of device. It's free. And what you do is you like basically log into your local li public library and you can access eBooks and audiobooks on it. And it's just, you don't have to go anywhere. Um, and su super nice. There's like always a lot of weird things available. I listen to a lot of old mystery audiobooks. That, you know, I don't know why, but other people don't want to check out. So you can check out any of your, your weird your weird top picks. So um highly recommend Libby for free literary fun for the whole family. So pretty awesome. A fun tip. And I obviously would never do this or share a Netflix password or anything. But if you have friends with different library cards, you can put multiple library cards in there and have access to a lot of different libraries if they don't have the book that you want. Interesting. Wow. But I like it. I, I would never do that, but <laughs> other people could if they wanted to. An option. Yeah. So, Chris? so my pick of the week, I I, I went back and um, one of my my favorite cards were were Toxicology in a Box. I've had this for a couple of years now, and they just have some of the, the just some of the best illustrations, and they have toxidromes and all sorts of things in in here. It's 154 full color flashcards to teach you how to recognize and treat drug overdoses and poisoning. And it, it's been one of my favorite, favorite buys for my, with my CME money over the last several years. And they just, I like pulling it out and just flipping through it. And um, I don't know, it's one, one I wanted to share with people. Yeah, I love those. They're great. Nice. Well, this week, my, well, actually, Diane, do you have, do you have a pitch of the week? Anything, any Netflix show you're watching or any new thing that uh, got you intrigued? Yeah, I um well, I'll plug a book that I just read. Um and I'm going to check out Libby cuz I like to read a lot and particularly weird stuff other people don't want to read. <laughs> um but Perfect. this is not this is not that. I just read a fantastic book by um Yagi Yossi called Transcendent Kingdom. She's a author from Ghana who grew up in Alabama wrote Homegoing, I think is the name of her first book, right? And um anyway, this is a just insightful journey of a young woman who becomes a scientist to investigate the pathophysiology behind her brother's addiction. And it has a lot of great themes about spirituality and addiction and neuroscience and depression and mental health. And I just loved it. So that's my pick of the week. Nice. You're the third person now to have recommend that book. And so I, I need to check it out. I know. I keep on putting on the top of the list of things one of these days. So good. Uh, yeah, hopefully I'm not the third person to recommend it on this podcast. No, no, no. I think first on the podcast. When Breath Becomes Air, that's been mentioned on the podcast multiple times. But this one, this good one was one. unique. Yeah. Great. Honestly, my pick of the week this week is Toxic Ingestion, which makes me very excited <laughs> to dive deep into the content. And uh, I'm going to pass over to Becca to, to get us started. 
Yeah, so I think it makes sense. You know, this is such a huge topic and so many things to talk about. Um, But start a little bit with um, big strokes, as you said, one of your main loves is in public health. And just kind of curious from a sort of zoning out perspective, who are the people that come in with toxic ingestions? Like what age of patients does this really affect? So I look at things mostly through a poison center lens because I'm the director of a poison center. And so I know a lot about the people who call poison centers, you know, after a poison exposure, and a bit about people who end up in the hospital from poison exposure. Sadly, some people don't ever end up reported to either of those mechanisms. Sometimes it's, you know, medical examiner data or something like that. But poison centers capture the majority of these. And, you know, it's interesting, over half of all the poisonings called into poison centers are kids. So, you know, definitely the majority. And that's patients under 19 years of age, but a lot of those are actually the kids under six. The first toxicologists were pediatricians, and uh, the first poison centers in many cases were started by pediatricians. So even though toxicology has now become, you know, kind of a rich field of people from emergency medicine and pediatrics and internal medicine and preventive medicine, a lot of other specialties, it was kind of ours first, if you will. Uh, When we think about the poisoned kid, There's a couple of flavors. The young kid, so zero to six, those are what we call the exploratory ones. So that's the kid who gets into something that they don't intend to harm themselves with, but they haven't acquired enough common sense to not drink it. And uh, that's a lot of our business. I'd say much, you know, even more common than the teenager or the preteen who either has kind of abuse, misuse, or sadly, uh, suicidal intent poisoning. And then There's this valley of like six to 10 years of age where it's like the school age kid who's, you know, sensible enough to not drink something under the counter and yet has not acquired the taste or desire to harm themselves with poisoning. Great. And this is kind of a helpful uh, setup for uh, our first case. We'll do a a patient case to kind of see how you would advise approaching one of these individuals that comes into an emergency department. Becca, you want to just start it? Yeah, sure. So kind of starting off with the pediatric case, um, we're, you're working in the emergency department at Cashlag Children's Hospital, and a new patient has arrived. Before you even walk into the room, you hear from triage that the patient is a 16-month-old kiddo whose parents are very concerned as she, quote, got into something and doesn't seem like herself. Um, so you're just hearing this from afar. So As you're walking into the patient's room or before you walk into the room, what are the first things that you need to know and what are the first things that you're going to do? Well, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm actually going to put on my PEM hat (laughs) again and do what you do with every patient that you know is coming in like that, right? ABCs, airway breathing circulation, D for dextrose decontamination, um, particularly in our patients who may be poisoned exposure make sure they're not either covered in something that could be making them sick or emanating an odor, and then vital signs. I think one thing that's important to remember with poison patients is don't forget the basics. We're going to talk about a lot of you know novel approaches and fancy antidotes, but you'll never go wrong if you start with the basics. Sage advice. Yeah. And so in these patients where, you know, there's a grandfather there who may not have every answer or, you know, some worried parents, how do you go about approaching the history of a patient where you know that there's something that happened, but it's kind of unclear 
what the ingestion might be. How do you go about taking a history for these types of patients? So I think of what time of day it is and whether the patient was kind of discovered in the morning not being able to wake up or they were last seen fine a half hour ago. You know, those are two different things and, and suggest different exposure patterns. The kid who doesn't wake up in the morning may have been exposed the night before. Finding out what's in the house and, you know, I think we've all asked that question and gotten the answer. There's no medicines in the house, but I've never been to a house that has no medicine, right? Um, and so, or, or they couldn't have gotten into anything, but of course they could have. So asking what medications people may be on, and not only that, but the health conditions. Like, you know, Grandpa, do you have diabetes? Do you take something for blood pressure? You know, a lot of what the one pill can kill list we think about for kids is blood pressure medicines, diabetes medication, opioid pain relievers. So asking about the medical history is key. If they were found near pills, that's kind of a nice gimme, and you can try to figure out what they are. You can always look up a pill imprint or call your poison center for a pill imprint to identify it if they bring in an example of the pill, whether they have residue on their mouth. And then if anybody else in the house is affected, you know, that suggests either an environmental exposure or something like carbon monoxide or siblings who got into a common toxicant. So those are the kind of first things I hit in the history when they come in. And in these patients, is there a broad lab approach that you would start? Are there routine labs, TOTS labs that you would order just to kind of routinely assess these individuals? Yeah. You know, I try to think of things that I wouldn't be able to pick up on exam. Uh, so although we sometimes get a urine drug screen because it makes us feel better and sometimes it helps with the undifferentiated pediatric ingestion, a lot of the things on the urine drug screen you can tell by physical exam. But there's some things you can't, like acidosis. You can't look at a kid and tell that they're acidotic. You might think they don't look very well, but you can in no way guess what their blood pH is unless you draw it. So I do that with a venous blood gas. There's actually almost no poisoning that I need an arterial blood gas. So there's no need to do an art stick. Electrolytes, similarly. I can't assess for hypokalemia or, or you know anything like that just on physical exam. You must always get a sugar. Plenty of things drop your sugar. Sugar can cause, uh, low blood sugar can cause anything from an obtunded child to even a focal neurologic deficit. And it's easy to get and it's quick. And it's, you know, if you discover it, you can really turn the kid around very quickly. And then an ethanol level, again, it's easy. And then we get in this habit of doing the other rule outs, which is acetaminophen and uh, aspirin. I don't have a problem with doing it. You know, the, again, you can't otherwise detect it. But the likelihood of occult salicylate poisoning or acetaminophen uh, overdose without some history in a young child is, is less. I have a question. Um, is, you know, with a lot more people like vaping these days and getting into like sort of the liquid nicotine, are there other tests that we could look for for that that you may generally get? Or would you uh, sort of look at history before you do any of those types of tests? Yeah. So with, um, you're talking about like a young child, Chris? Yeah. If they get into like their older siblings, like vaping liquid or something like that, is there, are there any tests that we can do for that? Or is it mostly looking at their toxidrome or how they're doing in terms of their exam? Yeah. So for nicotine poisoning, it really is clinical exam. And that is uh, muscle fasciculations. They can have GI symptoms. Um, they can have seizures. A nicotine or a conine level is really not helpful in the in the short term. There's some tests we get in kids for kind of forensic reasons, right? To determine if a child's been ex exposed to an illicit drug or something that might signify abuse or neglect. 
getting a conine level kind of falls into that category. The other thing that vaping liquid though can contain is THC. And before the world was turned upside down with COVID, remember when we were talking about <laughs> vaping associated lung injury and EVALI? Well, it's still out there and was certainly seemingly linked with mostly THC containing vapes. Um, so if you know, the kid drinks a THC vape liquid, liquid, you'll find that in the urine. And so maybe before getting into some of the specific tot syndromes and anecdotes, what I have always kind of been trained is to have a knee-jerk response to call poison control. And I think I feel that's that's the one thing I learned with with toxicology was call poison control. And you'll meet these wonderful people that always have the answers. Can you talk a little about when's the right time to call poison control? And I'm really curious, who am I talking to when I call there? Like what What's the vibe? Are they are they at home? Is there a call center? What are they looking at? Uh, you know, what what is the, the the poison control center? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question, Justin. The answer to when should you call the poison center is when shouldn't you call the poison center? You should call the poison center over and over as many times as you want. Many times when you're sit looking at a kid, actually the poison center is already aware because we might have heard from the parent at home, and we're always happy to hear about cases as they evolve. So unlike the consultant that you wanna have everything ready before you call them, poison control centers are very happy to kind of walk you through cases with limited information and help you figure out what you need to get next. So who answers the phone and who are, who are we? Poison centers are across the country, there's 55 of us. Our poison center, the New Jersey Poison Center serves the uh, state, entire state of New Jersey, we're one call center. The people on the other end of the phone are nurses and pharmacists, doctors, sometimes nurse practitioners and PAs. So people with kind of graduate level healthcare degrees who undergo training in poisoning. And that is a period of a couple of years of training and a number of hours before they can be what we call a certified specialist in poison information. So You'll hear us refer to them as spies. That's what we call them. Um, and that's, nice. uh, you know, we don't even think about it anymore, but you say it to somebody who's not used to hearing it and they're like, what? Um, so yeah, so the spies are there 24 seven and some centers are remote and some centers are in person and some are half and half. We're mostly in person on the call floor and the um, poison centers are operate 24 seven, 365, but are usually comprised of about 10 to 15 people. So even though you think of maybe calling a big operation, it's actually relatively small. The New Jersey Poison Center, our staff is about 20 people all told. And are they just experts who are awaiting the call? Or I feel like sometimes I'll, I'll say we have a four-year-old who looks a little sleepy and has a rash and is maybe sweaty. And they'll be like, okay, so this is what they took. They took six uh, sertralines, two bins, and they have this like unbelievable expertise that just blows my mind. Is there, is there like a lexicomp equivalent that they're looking at and like figuring out, or is this someone in a lazy boy who's just like, uh, I know what's going on here, Doctor Burke? I have a box of index cards that I flip through <laughs> until I find the right one. Um, yeah, there's a few things. First of all, we do use um, a few online databases, including Micromedics, to look up things like, you know, I found this, I'm using this chemical, here's the name of it, what's in it. We have access to MS material safety data sheets and things like that to determine the contents of things that are not food, because you don't have to print the ingredients of that weed killer. 
but you do have to have an MSDS. And then Micromedics also helps us figure out how much of a given exposure is too much and when we should refer patients in. It's also important to realize that behind every spy is a, <laughs> see, now you guys are down with the lingo, so you know you can just pass it on and say it like you've known the meaning of it your whole life. Behind every spy is a toxicologist. So I'm on call and so are my colleagues, you know, every night to back up uh, the spy who may be talking to a physician with a complicated case or whatever. And you can always get the toxicologist also on the phone to talk and provide a consult. So there's a lot of layers there. Now, is there like a 1-800 number to get hold of like all the poison centers? Like what, what can we give out to our patients and our parents? There is. There is a national hotline, which is 800-222-1222. And it's kind of amazing because if you dial that number, it will route to the poison center that you're kind of closest to or where you're standing. So if you're in New Jersey and you dial the number, you get us. Sometimes it routes by area code and you know doesn't work exactly that way, but it really does work remarkably well. So that national hotline goes to one of the 55 poison centers. And then we do all have what we call backdoor numbers. So if I, Diane Colello, am vacationing out of state, but I need to call my poison center, I have a number that I can dial into the hotline for that as well. And sometimes that's useful for the hospitals, you know, to kind of get a direct line in. But you won't go wrong dialing 2221222. Excellent. Oh, one other thing I should mention is many poison centers have text and chat capability. Hmm. Um, and because we do find that not everybody wants to pick up the phone. And so for the complicated stuff, even if you text or chat in, we advise you know, give me a number I can call you so we can really talk about this. Um, certainly at the New Jersey Poison Center and many other centers, you can text or chat at least to start the encounter. Awesome. That's great. Is there a number one reason people call? Like, is it, or what's the most common? Is it bleach? Is it unknown substance? Is it hair product? Is there, is there like a common, most common call? Yeah, it depends a little on age. So for our, our young kids, it's, it's soap. <laughs> and, you know, kind of household stuff. It's cosmetics and cleaning products. I like to say that silica gel packs and glow sticks keep us in business. They're both mm -hmm. totally non-toxic. We get a ton of calls. Um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that those little silica packs say do not eat. You know, there's like plenty of other toxic things that don't say do not eat, but silica <laughs> packs do. Um, they so are terrifying. Yes. <laughs> so we, I'd say, so Justin, I think a lot, you know, a preponderance of calls is non-toxic ingestions. One of my favorite calls to take personally is the non-toxic ingestion. It's the panicked parent whose kid just, you know, bit into a whole thing of deodorant, you know, who's really worried. And it's so easy to be able to calm them, or it's so nice to be able to calm them down and tell them it's not going to hurt them, so... That's the most common. Now for adults, and uh, I'd include teenagers in that, the most common things are analgesics. It's uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, and then opioids. Um, and it basically follows availability and frequency of prescription. So the fact that acetaminophen is over the counter and it's in every house also is why it's the most common ingestion. So 
it's kind of a huge question, but um, so, you know, say our our patient here, our 16 month old, is you know still undifferentiated, stable, you know, stable vitals. How do you organize thinking about toxidromes? And I, I know you were speaking a little bit about kind of physical exam findings. Yeah, I um, you know, once we've moved beyond mental status and vital signs, I think of the big toxidromes, which are cholinergic, anticholinergic, opioid, sedative, hypnotic, sympathomimetic. And, you know, some of those are like, are they up or are they down, right? Are they sedated? And that's opioids and sedative hypnotics and cholinergic, like pesticides, which make you sleepy, but also bradycardic and bronchorrhea. Or are they revved up? You know, are they freaking out because they've had an amphetamine exposure and their heart rate's high and their blood pressure's high? Or they're a teenager and they smoke Jimson weed and they're dry and flushed with huge pupils. So there's kind of the, are they up? Are they down? And then looking at pupils, skin moisture, vital signs, and then, you know, just kind of trying to recognize that it's pattern recognition. You know, toxidromes are, are pattern recognition like that. Other physical exam findings that don't neatly fit into toxidromes, though, include hyperthermia. So drug-induced hyperthermia has a narrower differential than, you know, fever, which we know could be caused by anything in peds in particular. But um, drug-induced hyperthermia, in addition to stimulants, can be a serotonin syndrome or a neuroleptic malignant syndrome or a weight loss supplement. Um, the presence of cyanosis, let's not forget, could not only be hypoxia, but could be a dyshemoglobinemia like methemoglobinemia. Um, so, you know, sometimes you get a little pearl on your physical exam that helps point you in the right direction. The uh, appearance of, you know, the skin and the nails and the teeth can point you more in the direction of more chronic exposures like lead. So although, again, it doesn't like totally fit into a toxidrome, there are a lot of things you can learn from the physical exam. When it comes to like, um, you know, moisture and dryness and stuff like that, like, does like dry axilla work with kids? Does that happen? Like, can you put a gloved hand inside like the 16 month old's axilla? Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you can. I'll say, you know, a kid who's dry and hot is unusual looking. If you've ever seen one, because we're used to patients who are febrile or hyperthermic being a little damp um, and being kind of very. We associate it with them being well perfused, but you put your hand on a kid who's got a temp of 102 and a high heart rate and their skin is dry, you'll, you'll remember it. Um, so, so whether they can retain moisture in their axilla, I'm not sure, but I'll tell you, I'd rather put my finger in the ax, my hand in the axilla of an 18 month old than a, you know, 40 year old. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of our 40-year-olds, you know, I think in sort of in, in medical school, at least, learning about the toxidromes, usually learned about talking about adult patients. Are there any specific differences or things um, for pediatric population that we should be aware of and, and sort of how these toxidromes present? Sure. Yeah, there's a few medications that kids do not react to the same way as adults. And it's their kinetics. Maybe the drug gets into their brain more than it would be than it would in adults. We see that, um, for example, with buprenorphine. Uh, buprenorphine in adults has a ceiling effect. It doesn't cause respiratory depression until they get a ton of it. But kids do not have the P-glycoprotein efflux of buprenorphine out of their CNS. And so they get sleepy pretty quickly. Even if you compare buprenorphine to morphine, it causes more respiratory depression in kids. So 
that's different. Um, dextromethorphan, cough syrups. One of the reasons that they're, you know, don't give to kids under two is while DM and an adult might cause them to get sleepy and if they take too much might cause them to hallucinate, in a young child it might be converted to levorphanol, which is an opioid. And so a kid with a DM overdose comes in with pinpoint pupils, not breathing, and reverses with Narcan. And that doesn't happen. Wow. Yeah. So, and I, uh, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. I was a fellow, but, it, but it's truth, not fiction. <laughs> and then other things, you know, kids have a few pathophysiologic or physiologic differences, like they have a higher minute ventilation. You know, we know they are vulnerable to airborne toxins like carbon monoxide a bit more because they, they just take in more airborne gas. But it also uh, means that if they're poisoned with something like salicylate, which requires them to hyperventilate to stay at a neutral pH, they can't do it quite as well. Um, and so while we think of a salicylate poisoning in an adult as causing respiratory alkalosis, metabolic acidosis in young children, you may not have that respiratory alkalosis at all. They might just come in acidotic. Just because they can't keep up that respiratory rate. That's right. Wow. Yeah. They're tricky. That's, yeah. Those are great pearls. Um, when we have this undifferentiated patient, or even if we have some thought of what's going on, if they just say, you know, they took a whole bottle of Tylenol an hour ago, what are some of the urgency things that we need to do? When do we start thinking about decontamination, whether it's activated charcoal or do we ever do gastric lavage? Like what are we, when do we start thinking about doing something immediate to try to get the medication out? I think if it, any exposure makes me say, oh boy, <laughs> I might not be able to fix this with an antidote. Um, that's when I think of decontamination right away. So the thing that rises right to the top of my head on that is bupropion, um, which is a common antidepressant. It's hard to treat in overdose. And so that's the patient I automatically think of giving activated charcoal, maybe whole bowel irrigation because it's a sustained release prep. And the gastric lavage question, you know, it's kind of faded in and out and back in again. If you have somebody who really just took something not long ago and you're afraid it's going to kill them, giving a shot at gastric lavage if you have a large bore tube handy is a good idea. You might get some, some pills out. Where gastric lavage fails, I think, is that nobody can ever find the tube. Um, and so you could waste your energy and time looking for the tube when you could be doing something like giving charcoal or passing an NG to deliver a whole bowel irrigation, which is you know rapid installation of polyethylene glycol to basically try to flush drug through. We use that mostly for sustained release preps. And I use charcoal whenever I can in an awake patient who I think is cooperative and not likely to become unconscious soon because I don't want them to aspirate. And I use it freely in a patient who ends up intubated because they have a protected airway. And at that point, the primary risk of charcoal, which is aspiration, is removed. And can you explain what is activated charcoal? Can I make a campfire with it or what does it do? How does it work? You can. It's charcoal um, that basically some molecular magic happens where they put a bunch of stuff in it and it increases its molecular surface area. How's that? Um, 
And so that's what makes it activated. But if you were in the woods and accidentally swallowed, I don't know, foxglove, and <laughs> all you had was charcoal for your grill and you ground it up and ate it, you'd be better off than if you hadn't. Wow. another That's another <laughs> great pearl. But, but what if I'm in the woods and all I have is Ipecac? Can I do that? You, you can. Ipecac. Poor Ipecac. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and Becca's looking like, what's Ipecac? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they teach that about... Maybe they do. I don't know. I know. Ipecac went the way of paragoric... Um, and all these other old drugs. So Ipecac, you know, AAP pulled their support of Ipecac right when I was a fellow in the early um, 2000s. And the rationale behind pulling it was we don't want people to induce vomiting without medical guidance. Because we know there's certain ingestions that if you make somebody vomit, you're going to make them worse, right? If the kid drinks drain cleaner that burns on the way down and then mom panics and gives Ipecac and he throws it back up, then they're going to get burned twice, right? So, so having that in the home without kind of medical guidance made them nervous. And then Ipecac is um, sometimes abused for patients with eating disorders. And if you take too much Ipecac, you can get a fatal cardiomyopathy. So no more Ipecac. But I had somebody ask me a question about 20 years ago that really left an impression on me, which is, if a member of your family swallowed something really dangerous, would you want to give them Ipecac? And I said, absolutely, because <laughs> I would know if they needed it and if it would help. And there's not too many other things that make you throw up right away. Um, so I think Ipecac is good if you're in a remote area, far from medical attention. But I don't think any of us are likely to use or prescribe Ipecac ever again. Libby and Epicac, I think, are still good bits of the week. So, um, doing our crossover with wilderness medicine here, you know, what to take with you for your fo accidental right. foxglove ingestion. Very good. So, the bupropion you mentioned gives a lot of toxicologists uh, the palpitations, things like uh, yeah. the joke about ilbutrin. Mm -hmm. um, for a simple generalist for me, Things like acetaminophen has always been very worrisome because I've seen that where it just starts getting worse and worse, even though the kid's looking fine. Mm -hmm. Are there other ingestions that portend a bad prognosis or that really make you worry that we can't provide this reassurance right now but have to keep watching? Sure. You know, acetaminophen is not what it used to be <laughs> in that you're right. I think we used to think we have knack. We're good. As long as we get it in soon enough patient's going to be fine. But your concern about them is right on target, Justin, because now what we have is these massive bottles of acetaminophen that you can buy, you know, at Costco or wherever with 225 tablets. And on my list of holy crap ingestions is the massive acetaminophen. Um, and sometimes we double or triple the NAC infusion rate, and sometimes we dialyze them. And even some people are starting to talk about giving those patients fomepazole, you know, we use for like toxic alcohols um, because it blocks some portion of the acetaminophen metabolism and also maybe causes cellular repair. So big acetaminophen is no joke. Um, you mentioned bupropion. I just feel I must mention it again, um, not only because it is one of the hardest things to treat, 
but because it gives toxicologists such agita because it's impossible to pronounce. You know, we say bupropion and then we say buprenorphine and then we try to say them together and we mess them up. And it's the one trade name that I advocate for using because I find everybody finds it such torture to like not confuse it with buprenorphine. And also, is it bupropion? Is it bupropion? Is, um, but, but nonetheless, you know, status epileptic is wide complex dysrhythmia is really bad news. Um, salicylates are really complicated. That's most toxicologists' favorite poisoning, actually, because it's so elegant the way it causes respiratory alkalosis and metabolic acidosis and all the havoc it kind of wreaks on all the different organ systems. Isn't that the but, one with the tinnitus too? Is that the one? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's tinnitus and then it's an acute kidney injury. And then you get, you know, you got to keep the pH, you know, in this like threaded the needle range. Otherwise it rushes into your brain. And so, you know, salicylates are, are fun for us, but you got to watch them really closely. And um, they have delayed absorption. And sometimes you think the patient's going to be fine. And 12 hours later, they're really sick. And that's because all that salicylate sitting in their stomach just got absorbed. So uh, salicylate is, is definitely another one. And then um, on the non-pharmaceutical front, the ingestions that I hate the most in young kids are button batteries, hydrocarbons. So those you know thin petroleum distillates, one swallow can cause an ARDS and caustics. Because again, it's it's like a, a split second and it can cause a, a bad lifelong injury. And how long are we monitoring a lot of these kids? For Tylenol, it seems like you can really be a day or two to see the peak. And I don't yeah. know if that's based on pharmacokinetics or half-lives. And I know even with caustic congestions, there's a, we're monitoring them for some time, even if they look well because of some downstream effects. Yes. What, what's the typical approach of how long we're monitoring kids who come in with some type of ingestion? So the asymptomatic kid um, is really the one we should be asking, how long should we monitor? Right. The kid who develops symptoms, the question's out the window, right? Then you monitor them until they're better. But I think it just depends on what it is. If it's a sustained release preparation of something that's really kind of scary, like the previously mentioned bupropion, um, <laughs> That's 24 hours because I've, every toxicologist I know has tried to discharge a patient at 18 hours and they're signing the discharge paper and the kid has a seizure. So you got to watch them. Acetaminophen, you know, you normally see a peak in your transaminases within 24 to 36 hours. Um, so if there's not been any rise in the transaminases in that time and your acetaminophen level is zero, then the story's over and you can clear them and they can, they can go on their way. Uh, you said one thing about half-life, and I want to dispel one very common myth, which is half-life is not for toxicologists. It's a therapeutic parameter, right? The half-life is measured in therapeutic conditions. And it's based on things like the function of enzymes, which get overwhelmed in overdose, or the ability of the kidneys to excrete a drug that, again, get overwhelmed in overdose. So a half-life of a drug might be six hours, but an overdose, it might be 46 hours. So we get a lot of questions about what's the half-life of this drug, and I give that little spiel I just gave you because it um, doesn't really help us. 
So I know we kind of we kind of mentioned this earlier when we were talking a little bit about the bimodal distribution of ingestions. But so if say we have the same patient, but instead of a 16 month old, we have a 16 year old and this undifferentiated acute ingestion, how would your differential kind of change for this patient with that age? So we know a 16 year old is more likely to have knowingly done something. Um, And whether it's a suicidal pharmaceutical ingestion, or it's, um, you know, drug abuse or misuse or kind of exploratory behavior, they're just different. And so that's, I'm definitely getting an alcohol level. And, you know, I might think about a drug screen, but I'm also going to do a careful physical exam and find out what's in the patient's pockets and, you know, stuff like that. One worrisome thing is that a teenager's also more likely to take a lot of something. So one of the things that I think saves young kids is they don't take very much. So as long as it's not a high lethality toxin, we're, you know, a two-year-old's not likely to swallow 100 pills, but a motivated teenager is. So I think my level of concern is generally higher. As a follow-up to that, you mentioned if they, the teenagers seem to take too much, and then you also mentioned that one pill can kill for, for the younger age group. Broadly in toxicology, can you talk about how much is too much? You know, what, when should we start having red flags? I say this, I remember learning the dose is the poison of, yes. of how much, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about this? Is that the case of how do we know when five pills versus 20 pills, when we should start getting worried? Yeah. So again, um, the poison control center does have that information for a lot of exposures. And many times I ask my spies the question, like, can you just look this up on micromedics so I can figure out if this is a big problem or a small problem? For the majority of medications, if you are used to taking 10 milligrams and you actually accidentally take 20, that's not a problem, unless it's like a very narrow therapeutic index medication. But the vast majority of meds, if it's just a double dose, is not going to be a problem. We get a lot of worried calls from parents who accidentally give the kids you know, ADHD med twice or something. And then there's just thresholds for kind of everything. So we know acetaminophen is 150 milligrams per kilo. Uh, Salicylates is 150 milligrams per kilo. Alcohols are about one cc per kilo of 100% solution will give you a level of 100. So if you kind of think about that for a second, nobody ever has 100% 100 ethanol. So if you kind of calculate back, it helps you to figure out, you know, what your ethanol level would be with a given ingestion. And then um, one of the other things we think about with dose calculation is cannabis. There's a lot more cannabis out there. Every state is you know, expanding their access. And uh, for kids, we start worrying about four or five milligrams of THC per kilo. So in terms of kind of some of the latest developments in treatment of poisoning exposures, are there, we talked a little bit about some old treatments that we don't really use very much. Are there any um, newer therapies or, or any comeback kids that we should know about? Yeah, there's always something. So we already talked about the modified NAC dosing for acetaminophen and toxicologists love to argue about that. Um, but there's a lot happening on that front. I mentioned using uh, 4-methylpyrazole or trimepazole, which we use for toxic alcohols for acetaminophen. We're starting to see a resurgence of physostigmine, which goes by the fantastic trade name of antilirium, although it probably doesn't still go by that trade name, but it's like one of the greatest trade names ever. <laughs> and 
that is a pretty effective antidote for anticholinergic delirium that we used to think was like just a terrible idea, but we're realizing it's pretty safe for use. There's some new snake antivenoms that have uh, emerged. So now there's a couple of choices for that. We have a modified treatment for cyanide uh, poisoning with uh, hydroxylcobalamin, which is an alternative to the age-old cyanide antidote kit. So the list goes on and on, but there's always something new happening. Oh, and one more thing, which is the use of methylene blue for shock, um, which is not only in poisoned patients, but, uh, you know, we love methylene blue, of course, because it treats hemoglobinemia, but it's, it's not just for that. Wow. And I know that, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the concern with cannabis poisoning with them, just like increased availability of edibles specifically. But are there any other kind of interesting trends in pediatric poisoning right now, Um, things that we should watch out for? I'm rotating in the ED later this summer. So anything I should watch out for? Yeah. So the cannabis thing, just to revisit that for one second, we are seeing quite a big surge in that. At the New Jersey Poison Center, we've seen a 600% increase in edible cannabis exposures in kids since 2018. Some of that may be COVID and people stuck at home and you know, decreased supervision, but, but cannabis is definitely, um, I think, the leader in the clubhouse. We're seeing a lot of COVID-related exposures, hand sanitizers, disinfectants, vitamins, you know, zinc, that kind of thing. Once hand sanitizers got contaminated with methanol and benzene, that, of course, created uh, more panic. But fortunately, as long as you don't drink it, it shouldn't be too, too dangerous. And then, you know, we're always talking about the hazards of button batteries, single-use laundry detergent packets like Tide Pods. Um, and every, you know, the work of the Poison Center is never-ending on these kind of press releases and media outreach of all these perennial hazards. This is about the time we start talking about pool chemicals because it's getting into summer. Um, and then we tell people not to forage for mushrooms as it gets into the fall. So, you know, there's all these seasonal trends. Although we we just picked some nice morels. They taste really good. How are you feeling? I feel <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think one of the most important things in, in, you know, addressing some of these uh, ingestion is also trying to figure out how to prevent them. And so it sounds like there are some educational components based on the seasonals, but are there other effective preventive strategies for accidental ingestions or even intentional ingestions in teens? Yeah. Um, so for the little kids, it's important to remember that there's no such thing as child proof, right? Child resistant means it gives you time. And so a child should never be left alone in a pro- for a long, prolonged period of time with anything that is childproof because they will eventually get the bottle open. Up and away and out of sight is key. Remember that kids do climb onto counters and stuff to get to stuff. So just because it's up and away doesn't mean it's childproof. They'll get there eventually. Storing the really toxic stuff as far away as you can um, I like to think of that as get your caustics, your hydrocarbons, your pesticides, and your button batteries, you know, out of your house if you can, because those, like I said, are the things that are kind of split-second toxins. For teenagers, it's harder, right? It's education. It's talking about suicide prevention. It's talking about drug use and abuse and the consequences, and just kind of keeping the lines of communication open. And then for at-risk teens, 
locking up high-risk medications. You know, one thing that we we really value on the Cribsiders is thinking critically about um, the way in which disparities, whether they're racial disparities or socioeconomic disparities, kind of impact the quality of of treatment that patients get for any given presentation or or just the incidence of disease that patients present with. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about sort of from your public health perspective, you know, what disparities and in incidence of ingestions or treatment of ingestions that you've kind of observed in your clinical practice? There's quite a lot there. Uh, you know, we know that kids who live in high poverty areas particularly children of color, are overrepresented in poisoning fatalities. And there's a study that was done by the New York City Office of the Medical Examiner looking at that and found, you know, in addition to the substances that were more likely to be involved, things like opioids, but that kids kind of meeting that definition, if you will, were definitely at greater risk of fatality from poisoning. Fortunately, fatality is in pediatric poisoning is somewhat rare, but it's much riskier in that scenario. It's also riskier in the drug-endangered child. So, you know, across racial and ethnic lines, if you have a child who is living, you know, in a home where there's drug manufacture or distribution or use, they're, they're definitely at greater risk. There's more stigma in seeking care I think for populations, either where it is the exposure is something like an opioid and they don't want to talk about it, but certainly for people for whom English is not their first language. They're less likely to seek care. They're less likely to be understood when they present for care. They may not understand the instructions when they're given. They're more prone to medication errors. Um, and that's a big issue. And then something I think that has been with us for a while, but it's really rearing its ugly head in the post-COVID era is uh, pediatric environmental lead poisoning. So we still see thousands of kids every year with elevated lead levels, which we know takes away some of their intellectual potential, potentially, or you know, school readiness and, and performance. And um, kids really should not be exposed to lead, but they still are. And it comes from older dilapidated housing. And now with COVID, people being able to get in for their lead tests and inspectors being able to get out to see their uh, houses. Um, and then now there's drug shortages with chelation that may not reverse anytime soon. And so all of a sudden, what we knew was a big problem um, for poorer kids uh, living in urban areas is, is so much more of a problem now. And we're just going to keep seeing more and more of it. So with a lot of these different type, you know, you've listed a lot of different areas where we can obviously improve. What programs are there out there? What innovations and how can we help? What, what can we do to, to help address some of these needs and, and disparities? One of the big things that we have a lot of room to grow in is actually getting the lead testing. You'd be surprised. You know, we, kids are supposed to get it at nine to 12 months and then again at two years. And in many instances, neither of those tests happen, or maybe one of them happens. So even though that's not really prevention, at least it's catching it early. And then I think, you know, talking, we, we do a lot of anticipatory guidance in primary care, of course, but trying to deliver the messages about not just locking stuff up, but locking up the really dangerous stuff and then doing a teach back. Like, what did I, you know, what did I say? You know, and, and did I uh, 
deliver that message in a way that you can, that you were ready to hear it and, you know, and was it received, I think is also helpful because we, I think we give a lot of information and knowing what actually lands is hard. And so I think these are obviously important things to, to keep in mind as we go forward and in identifying and addressing toxidromes. We've talked about a lot today. Are there, are there big take-home points that you want to really emphasize so that we, we all kind of uh, have certain things we, we walk away with? Of course, call the poison center. <laughs> Number one. Two and three. But uh, if you can't call the poison center, call me or, or call your toxicologist, you know, because there's, uh, we just love talking about this stuff. Uh, we really do. <laughs> We're a, a, kind of a strange bunch. Don't forget the basics. You know, you can talk about antidotes till you're blue in the face, but you're dealing with an undifferentiated ingestion. Don't forget what you already know, which is how to take care of the kid who may not be breathing as well or maybe hypotensive and need fluids. And prevention is always better than treatment. So as much as we can do to kind of prevent injury before it happens, that's really been the only thing that's been shown through the years to reduce the incidence of pediatric poisoning fatalities. Prevention is the most important. And if not, then make sure we have activated charcoal in the home and in our cars and mm-hmm. on, in our that's backpacks. Right. You should carry it wherever you are. <laughs> and if, you know, if you're like me, you also may carry other antidotes. Never mind. Yeah. Have a for this. The snake I know, antivenom. I know I'm like, what yeah. antidotes do you carry with you? I have a few things. You never know what you need, but we should all actually have some naloxone handy. I was going to say, yeah, I carry naloxone. naloxone nasal spray would be not a bad naloxone idea. for yeah. everyone. Excellent. I'm yeah. so pleased. Awesome. <laughs> In addition to naloxone, are there other bids, anything that you would like to plug to make sure our listeners uh, check out? Um, well... I'll give one shameless plug for one of my favorite professional projects, which is our Toxin Hound blog. Um, really, really glad to be writing with this group of very smart toxicologists. We started in 2018 um, and put out what we aim to be weekly content. Uh, we're just getting our legs post-COVID again, but uh, I strongly encourage you to check that out. There's a particularly excellent post entitled Small Poisoned Humans, which was written by the one pediatric toxicologist in the group who shall remain nameless. <laughs> who could that be? Nice. <laughs> we will we will prominently feature that in the show notes. Oh, thank you. And um, the, uh, the adorable children in the post, I also know them. Nice. <laughs> You're going to be celebrities. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. This is amazing. It was amazing. Um, really appreciate you you spending the the hour with us teaching us so much about toxicology sharing your passion uh can't express our gratitude enough thank you for joining us oh this was fun thank you so much for having me this has been another episode of the cribsiders it's for the kids get show notes at the cribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at knowledge food formula feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox we are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we need your feedback so please subscribe rate and review the show on apple Podcasts or any of your podcast players you can contact us at the cribsiders at gmail.com a special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode dr beckton raymond Coulter. i have been justin lee burke I've been Becca Raymond Colker. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you and good night. And don't forget to buy your activated charcoal.
Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.